Hey guys, welcome into another episode of the Happy Haven Podcast. This week we had Rob McCollum back in the Haven, and we had Tanya Candler from Kitty. Kitty, guys, I've loved this band since like forever, and they collaborated and did an awesome documentary with the rest of the band, spanning their huge career, and then we talk about some of the projects Rob has coming. Awesome episode. It was so cool to meet a member of a band that I've loved forever. So enjoy, guys. Enjoy as much as I did. This episode was awesome. My, my, uh, <laughs> and I'm putting this in the show because we are officially rolling. My oldest daughter just had to go to work early so she could get in an Easter Bunny costume. Oh. She works for a, um, a chocolate shop down here, like a cell phone chocolate shop called Peterbrook down here. And um, she's their Easter Bunny today. And I told her as soon as this episode's done, I am running down. And uh, you can't talk, and I'm going to have so much fun with that. (laughs) (laughs) Nice, nice, nice. But, uh, yeah, uh, so tell us, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about the documentary just to break the ice, and then then we'll go from there. Well, where to to start? I mean, uh, it's been in the works for a while, long before actually I was involved. Uh, I think it was 2014 that Kitty on Mass decided to do an Indiegogo campaign. Is that right, Tanya? Yeah, it was about 2014, and the girl said, you want to do this? And everybody was pretty much in. What was what was your reaction when they first asked you about it? I was a little... I wasn't standoffish, but I was nervous. Like, uh, what, did, what, what does everybody want to know? What are we going to get asked if this goes forward? Like, what's going to happen? Is this going to happen? Is anyone actually going to give a shit? Like, we've been out of, in and out of the spotlight for years, and for, especially for me, because I was in the first lineup. I'm like, does anyone really give a shit? Like, really? So I was kind of a, a little bit nervous. People definitely so- care, let me tell you. I, uh, I introduced, I, you know, I always grew up listening um, to that kind of music, and in Massachusetts and Providence, I was in bands and actually was very much involved in the making of that style of music. And um, my wife is a little bit older than me, so she came from more of the 80s music era. And um, I played Brackish for her, and we've been together for almost 20 years, but years ago I played Brackish for her, and she was like, that's all girls? I was like, yeah, that's all girls. (laughs) And she was just like, that is awesome! Um, I've actually... It would have been about 99 or 2000, um, you know, uh, wrapping up stuff with the Army. And I had a cousin who did Renaissance festivals. And, you know, people have heard me talk about him on the show. He's he's the only hippie I've ever loved. And um, I decided to go out on the road with him. And we were actually in Apache Junction, Arizona. So this would be around 2000. And uh, you guys played a show and i don't know where your status with the lineup was with that but i would um, be after my time okay um <laughs> i actually got to see the band play uh with seven dust oh kick ass in tempe arizona and yeah it did not disappoint at all <laughs> they, uh, you guys they never were, do none of, none of the lineups it's always been amazing chemistry yeah, i mean you guys have been kick ass from the get-go thank you most definitely 
So yeah, from basically the Indiegogo campaign onward, man, it uh, they they raised their their funds, they doubled their goal, they hit I think they hit their initial goal of like 20k in the first day, and they ended up doubling that to something over 40. And the scope of the campaign was for the documentary and kind of like a book as well. And from what I understand, they had slated to work with Dave Brodsky, who had done a few of their music videos to direct it. And then he got tied up, and there was back and forth stuff. And then about a year later, um, at, at this point, uh, Trish Joan, who I had talked to when I first heard about the campaign, because I got a song to use in Nintendo Quest, she called me again and said, hey, are you still interested in doing the doc potentially on Kitty? Because, of course, when I heard from her, I'm like, hey, do you guys have a director? Because, you know, that would be great and stuff if I could do it. I'm from the same town as you guys. I know the band. I kind of was there as the rise started to happen. They're like, no, 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 we got somebody. But flash forward a year, and she's like, there's an opportunity. And then from there, it was like full force that like, this was going to go forward. And uh, I was going to be lucky enough to craft this story that's been 20 years in the making. And the, and the cool part about it, man, is these guys have been like filming nonstop on their own. They, hadn't, they haven't stopped at all. Like using archival footage. Oh, that's awesome! Sorry. Hey, honey, are you walking around up there? Because it sounds like there's a herd of cattle on on the microphone. No, the dog is an asshole. <laughs> oh, okay. I have one of those. That's why I close myself off upstairs. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm about to put up the baby gate for him. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I actually, so, yeah, I have a couple episodes where you hear talking, and then all of a sudden, it just sounds like. Um, Frickin' Jack London showed up and Call of the Wild just opened up in my living room, so I've actually started having to, like, sequester myself in the furthest back room of the house. Yeah, it's like like Dances with Wolves up here right now. (laughs) I get it. I get it. But that's essentially how how it came to be, and, uh, you know, the, the story itself was really fascinating for me to learn and kind of hear everybody's different perspectives on things. I mean... I I look at filmmakers like Errol Morris, who you know famously did the the Thin Blue Line and a bunch of other films, and he makes documentaries in a way where people will talk about an event, something as simple as a cop pulling over somebody on the side of the road, but then he'll get everybody's perspective, and you'll see how that scene can be played out and, and viewed differently, and how the details change. It's, right. it's really like that when you make a documentary, because you ask about okay, what was it like? Uh, writing and recording Brackish, and then you've got you know four people talking about what that experience was like and piecing it together. So it's a it's a real special treat for me as the filmmaker because I get to hear and see everything, and then the fun challenge, and I really mean the fun challenge about piecing it together. Uh, and this film in particular is is by far you know my favorite film that I've ever made and a project that I've been a part on because there there's just so much depth and humanity and in heart. Uh, and something like heavy metal, which people might not associate off the cuff. You know what? I, 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 no, I totally see what you're saying. Um, you know, people who either couldn't get into that kind of music or dismiss it as, you know, oh, that's just a lot of noise, which is something that with my musical taste and stuff I've heard for years. Um, but it takes a hell of a lot more to do that and actually make it a real viable thing than I think people ever even try to consider. You know, we all think of like, oh, yeah, well, you know, the bunch of friends get together and they start 
plinking around on stuff in a garage and then you know they're that one in a million shot that ends up being world famous and it, it no that's not how music works that's not how bands work um you know when, when you make real music um which is what kitty has done and and bands like I've listened to, I consider real music, uh, pop music generated and written by 50 different people and then processed through a computer in a studio isn't music. Um, it takes so much of you to bring that music to other people. And, you know, there's so much BS that goes in when you're a new band and everything you've got to go through and all the different things that pull at everybody. Because even though you're one cohesive band, you've all got these life experiences that are happening individually. And, and to still be around and to still be able to make a relevant documentary this many years later is a real testament to the heart and talent of, you know, the members of the band that have come and gone and are still in. And, you know, I know the lineup's changed, but, you know, it took a lot of heart and it took a lot of sacrifice and hard work, you know, to get them where they are. So I, I totally understand what you're saying. And I think it's awesome. And that's that the thing, man. That's like really the thing, right? Like it doesn't matter what this, like the specifics are like, yeah, this is a bunch of people that wanted to make metal music. If you want to focus on the fact that most of them were women, that's your prerogative. It was never my prerogative. Right. Uh, which, which is why you don't see that staple section about what's it like to be women in rock and roll. And then, right. you know, how, like, Tanya, what's it like to be, you know, a woman in an all-metal band? Tell us. I have no idea. <laughs> no, it's just a lot of people really focused on that. I found with the doc that I think you were the first person who didn't focus on that and say, hey, you know, let's let's ask some questions here. Beaver first. What's it like to be, a you know, a female playing metal music? Well, what, you know, I mean, that's silly. What's it like just playing metal music? Right, it exactly. Was, it, was, it was refreshing to have Rob on board with everything because he didn't treat us like hey you're just girls you know that pick up a guitar and it's really cute and good for you it was yeah it was tough because we were female and so many people did focus on that and you know it was a little bit uh, a little bit more like discriminatory we had to try a little bit harder in the early days but also we had it easier in some ways in the early days too because everyone's like oh girls with guitars that's great because they had bands like hole and veruca salt and Right. There were, you know, rock bands, but nothing that was that hard at the time. So people really picked up on it. They they thought it was great. So if they looked at us as, you know, girls with guitars first and foremost, and then they listened, if that brought them in, you know, cool. Now I find that people are a little bit better about it. Most definitely. And, and, I, and I'll tell you what, if anything, I think it's gone the other way. Um, you know, because, you know, in that era of music, the... You know, the girls, if you want to call it, you know, like you guys and Veruca Salt and Hole and L7 and all the, they, 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 there wasn't a comparison of, oh, they, they, they rock as, as hard as the boys and oh, they, no, it was just a bunch of kick-ass music that was as kick-ass as everything else that was good back then. And I think today, you know, growing up in the era I grew up in and the style of music that I still prefer and listen to. I think a lot's been lost. I think there's actually been ground loss um, for female musicians. It seems to have gone back to, you know, almost primarily vapid, stupid music about the same stupid topics that a girl at 14 years old who shops at the Gap and doesn't know there's a bigger world out there is going to be perfectly fine with. You know, there aren't a lot of you guys left, and 
for that it's style sad. of like, music. I, I worry about our I worry about our kids. Right. It's like we're these, losing like, you know, progress. It's like you know, feminism and progressivism have gotten so big and have eaten their own tail so much that they're now eating their own progress that they made. Oh, big time. Yeah, and I think it's actually like I mean, how how do you put it in like a nineteen fifties, you know, um, nuclear America thing is like it's almost like they're putting themselves back in the kitchen. In, oh, yeah, in, in every field. And back when we didn't give a shit about all this stuff, you guys and bands like you like thrived and nobody cared like, oh, it's an all girl band. It, you know, when I when I was introduced to you guys, it was just like I was introduced to Corn and Deftones and Downset and all the stuff back then was, hey, I just got this tape. You really needed to listen to this badass band. And the word girl or woman was never mentioned in your introduction. And now I think in our much more open and tolerant society that's supposed to be so enlightened that would be the primary focus and every freaking question you guys would get in an interview would be geared towards something that could show up on like buzzfeed uh, <laughs> written yeah by- well i mean we're living in this you know this me too movement you know right now for better or worse and sure there is a lot of you know yeah uh, women creative artists out there be it actors actresses you know ceos musicians whatever the gamut is and sure you know equality and all that stuff is long overdue but like there's now it's starting to turn to something worthy of clickbait and like now let's you me too and click on this if you're a me too person like it's getting like really perverted and polluted away from the thing that it's supposed to be about well then i think that's that's, oh go ahead tanya sorry oh it's just it's getting really it's getting really ugly like it's getting super ugly and that's why i think the documentary could be refreshing I it's think absolutely. it is, man, and and I'll tell you. I mean, I'll tell you the, the honest truth. When I when I take on a project, I always look for that center, that nucleus, that is going to get me through the entire process. What about this story or this potential story? Do I love and is super fascinating to me? And it wasn't about you know women in heavy metal uh, about the story of Kitty for me. And this is why I'm a filmmaker and just documentaries in particular because I get to constantly look at different uh, careers and industries and, and kind of experience it for a flash in the pan. Right. For me, like, Kitty got to live the like the dream, like my dream. Like, they were teenagers that got to become rock and roll stars. Right. And I got to share what that story was and live vicariously through that and bring that story to the masses. So it's like... Here's what it was like, kind of be, uh, as the build was happening. Here's when it kind of exploded, and here's what that that meant for them, for better or worse. This is the roller coaster of their life. And you know, as I'm making this, it's like this could have been me. This could have been you know Joe down the street. This could have been you know Mary on the corner. This is what it's like to live that dream because they got to live it. You know, it's, right, it's exactly. cool. I was going to ask Tanya, what was the. Uh... What was the music scene like in Canada when, when you guys were were coming up? Because I remember Boston and Providence, man. There was like it was like this renaissance of just badass music. Our, it was pretty good. Like with the crowd that we kind of ran with, we all kind of listened to the same thing. I was more into like the girl bands like Hole and Veruca Salt, Fluffy bands like that. Yeah. But the stuff that we kind of grew up with in our circle of friends was like Corn, the Deftones, Limp <sighs> Bizkit, kind of that hardcore rap core kind of stuff and there was like the older metal too because all of us listened to what our parents listened to like the sabbath you know things like that deep purple i listened to a lot of led zeppelin those things so the scene was good it was really good and the music scene around town like everybody gigged we all played it you know either called the office or the embassy which were like the respective 
clubs here in town. And uh, the music scene was good. Everybody was friends with everybody. Things weren't so cutthroat. People would you know, organize shows together. Things were pretty friendly. Things were good. See, I remember. I miss that. I remember that so much. I mean, I think we were probably coming up at the same time then musically because, you know, this was like mid-90s to late-90s before I left for the military. And, yeah, it, there was just so much good local music in our, in our area. And it wasn't, you know, trying to stab each other to get to get higher up on a hierarchy than someone else. And, you know, it's just, I don't know. I just, I, I see myself reflecting more and more on the music from, from our era because it just seems to me like m music's kind of died. There, there's a couple bands here and there that do stuff that's still worth listening to. But like just back then, like that, that time in music, I'd, if it could have been frozen and encapsulated, I'd, I'd, I'd probably live there. <laughs> Me too. It, was, it was it was the it was the lightning in a bottle time. There's not that camaraderie that we have anymore. And like you say, there aren't too many. Like even here, there's not too many local bands that do much because it's hard to be a local band with the backstabbing, the shit talking. The you know, it's hard to get gigs, pay to play. You know, a lot of gigs are just a glorified band practice. The clubs don't want to pay you. They don't understand. You know working musicians you know who've got you know five other jobs to try to keep it their shit together because if they want to they got to work to tour which is something which is their passion which they want to be their career but it's you know it doesn't really come to fruition because it's hard to have the means you don't get these you know million dollar record deals that people don't sign you know to record companies like nirvana did and get these big ass cash cash advances and you got to look out for yourself you're kickstarting things you're, you're you know you're crowdfunding things you're going on your own dollar you're paying for yourself to go on tour it's hard right so 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 blah, blah, blah. i can edit that out because i just completely <laughs> brain farted a sentence out of my mouth um so like for, for you personally so because i actually get to talk to you and i have been a fan of the band for years um, so it, when he was, I'm like, starting to pick up on the real reason why you wanted me on the show, Jason. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Quiet, Rob. <laughs> oh no. No. Um, whatever. No, I mean, I mean, I, Rob was one of our first guests on the show, and we, we've kept in touch since then. So I think he he's knows something I'm else. Kidding. I will tell you that. He knows I'm kidding. No. Um, <laughs> what? What? What was like? your first big milestone for you where you were like, holy crap, when it came to the band? Uh, I think it was probably after Canadian Music Week. Uh, we played in Toronto. Like, we'd gone from playing in Morgan and Mercedes' parents' basement, seemingly to recording, and that kind of that kind of made it a little bit bigger than it was. It kind of blew things up. Like, you know what, this is maybe just not a hobby. Like, this could be a, a job. Like, we're going to school... We're taking our homework with us to the recording studio, recording till, you know, 9, 10 o'clock at night. Then we're, you know, going to high school the next day, a little tired and, you know, working hard and going back into the studio, recording the album. And then uh, we're, you know, we're trying to live our lives as normal kids, but we're starting to blur the lines together here. We're going to, you know, Toronto on weeknights to play shows and we're coming back and we're going to school the next day. Like we're not missing any school. We're trying to just keep it as normal as possible. But after a while, those lines started really blurring together. 
And then we uh, we played a showcase at Canadian Music Week, and that's where things kind of went like, oh, Jesus, for me, because people knew who we were, and nice. we had record company interest, and it was just, it was pretty wild. It went, it went very, very quickly, so it was hard to kind of stop and and think about it really rationally. Oh, okay, so it was like roller coaster. Oh, yeah, it was like, oh, it seemed seemed to be like overnight. It wasn't, but it, it seemed to be that quick. It was quick. Yeah, but I bet you felt... Because I know I did after playing a show or doing something, and then you go back to school and you're looking at like what you would call the normal high school kids who are like, "Hey man, let's go to a movie after school or let's go to the mall." And you're like, "Nah, I got I got to go um, open." Sounds first. like it sucks, right? Like, <laughs> nah. You, I mean, you guys go to the mall or whatever with the five bucks that you got in your pocket and can stretch for six hours while you walk around the mall. But um, I I, I got to go open a show for a band called Downset. You know, was, like, I remember being cool. being at that point, <laughs> like, <laughs> you're just like, yeah, no, I, I can't hang out. I, I got to go do something really <laughs> badass tonight. <laughs> was, well, I, that's always what I wanted to have come out of my mouth. But we we kind of we had a little bit of a, you know, a rift in high school. We play these shows and we'd be all built up and everybody would be like, oh, you guys are so great. You're really talented. Your music's so awesome. We go to high school the next day and people would be like oh, fuck you guys and your stupid band. And you're like, okay, cool, story. All right, going to go to band practice now and hang out with my friends. It was, high school was, was rough. People did not, think it, did not think we were as cool as we thought we were. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. Oh, yeah, if you notice, my whole thing about how cool that was was all my inner monologue. Oh, totally. Mine was like, like, Kevin, <laughs> like doing the Wonder Years thing. And then I, I was like, fuck you guys, go to the mall and drink off. <laughs> right. I was like, when I'm in a dingy smoke-filled club called Lupo's in Providence tonight, I'm going to be cooler than you. But for now, you just be that jock douche you'll always be. Oh, totally. And when you're fat and out of high school, I'll buy a car from you. (laughs) And that didn't happen. But, you know, because I made my own life choices and, and the band dissolved pretty much as soon as I left for basic training. And we did not get that, uh that lightning in the in the bottle effect um you know maybe it in real life we were more mediocre than i built my by <laughs> built it up and but i mean you know we were playing the, the 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 local circus but i think the difference was there was such a saturation i mean you know you were coming up in music at the same time boston oh, yeah. and providence were producing a lot of punk and hardcore bands and you needed to really be different you gotta have a shtick. Yep. That's what I it mean, was then. That's why Godsmack got famous. They got a Hobbit to be their lead singer. <laughs> wow. Shots fired. Um, no, I don't. Hobbits. I don't. I don't so like cute. Sully personally very much. <laughs> well, everybody interact- loves Lord of the Rings. What can I tell you? <laughs> Having interacted with him once or twice back in the day, I really don't care for that dude. But that's not what this is about. It's oh, not no. Jason's personal grudge against a crappy band hour. It's oh uh, no. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's Robin Year's time, so I need to shut up. What else would you like to know, man? Because uh, there's so much that we can talk about for this documentary. Um, I just, I really kind of urge people to check it out. You know, it's available on Amazon, or will be once it's restocked. We sold out day one. We shot to the top of. Listen to me say we like I like I'm part of the band. That's hilarious. He's in the band now. There's two guys in the band. <laughs> Rob McGowan no, and I'm, Jeff Phillips. I'm just happy to kind of film it and then, you know, let the band do whatever. Um, 
it's uh it's you got to check it out it's everywhere out there itunes amazon uh i, I believe it'll be in stores uh, relatively soon and uh you know if you want to tell what it's like to live the dream and do it with your friends and then realize what the real world is like as you try to navigate the the, wa- the waters of corporate uh, record labels and bands and press, this is definitely something worth checking out. So how how did you feel having watched it, Tanya? Afterwards, like watching watching your story be told and and all your other friends around you with like all the different perspectives, like Rob said. How did, how was, did you feel after watching it? I was I honestly I was floored. I thought I knew. You know, what I knew about the band, about Kitty, about the history, about everything. And Rob just did such a good job of seamlessly piecing this all together in such an order that I was I was knocked out of my, like the wind was knocked out of me. It was so amazing to see how it came together so well. And it, he told such a story that I don't think any of us, even if we got together to talk about it in a room ourselves, couldn't have put it together like that. It was it was really moving, emotional. I cried like it's a it's a film that my mom likes and she doesn't like anything. <laughs> She's like Rob did an amazing job. Never mind about you girls. Rob did. Oh my! Even she called me this morning. She, I said, "Mom, it's number one." She's like, "Well, that that doesn't have like too much to do with you guys. That's that's Rob. He he told the story." I'm like, "Congratulate him for me." I'm like, "I will." It just it's it's fantastic. He just did. It's just amazing. It's amazing to me to see that come together. That's awesome. Yeah, Rob, you're like. You're like the, the luckiest, luckiest guy in the world. The lucky, yeah. You're like the luckiest fan of things in the world, man. Like, I've loved Nintendo since I got my first one at five. But you got to like crisscross the country and make a badass movie about Nintendo. I loved Kitty since their first album came out, and so did you. Because I don't think people will pick up on the fact that you said you were a fan first when they were first coming up, and now you get to hang out with all of them and make this kick-ass movie, and you know. Make babies with one of them. I, I was like, what's the... <laughs> you were trying to find a way to say that, weren't you? What's the Someone nice had to with say her it. on the phone to be like, now you're kind of like a groupie. Oh, I'm totally Rob's groupie. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's reverse that. She's my... Like, I like reverse Harvey weinstein him. I was like, come on over here and lay on my casting couch. I like where this is going. <laughs> oh, I, t- I, t- I totally... I you totally... know where it went. We, we have a two-month-old daughter up there. <laughs> I know. I mean, oh, yeah. how awesome is that, though? Like, for you, Rob, like, watching this band and, and being a fan and watching them when you were younger, and now you're like, you got a family with one of the members of the kick-ass band that you love? That is... That's a story in and of itself right there, guys. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really cool the way that it all kind of came together. I mean, nothing was really planned. You know, when Tanya and I first met, we were, you know, married to other people. Those marriages didn't last. And then we started talking, and she, you know, just kept chasing me and chasing me, and I finally relented. True. I did chase him. I chased him on Facebook. Thank God for social media. Oh, my right? God. Some of us wouldn't have a show without it. Well, I, I, uh, I, I kind of... She's I doing a backup job of making my bribe worthwhile that I pay her every day. Oh, yeah. Wow. I thought he was kind of cute from when he first started doing the documentary. I kind of gave Mercedes shit, and I was like, well, because I was not in a happy marriage and was on the outs anyway, and I went, Mercedes, like, you had to get someone, like, good-looking to do the documentary? Like, fuck you. And she kind of went, oh. And I kind of went, he's kind of cute. And then uh, we both kind of looked the other way, and 
like Rob said, our marriages didn't last. They both kind of dissolved. And then I, uh, I uh, sent him a sexy comment on Facebook and he finally relented. It's true. <laughs> it's true. I gave Match everything up rock. to her. He did. <laughs> Match made in rock and roll heaven. Yeah. It is. So do you still keep in contact outside of the documentary? Did do you still keep in contact with, with the other members? Oh, yeah. I mean, Mercedes lives three blocks away. Morgan lives six blocks away. I mean, um, so the it's next cool. episode, so the next <laughs> episode I'm going to come up and do it in person. there, fisherman. Uh, it, it's actually really strange for me because because there was such a gap between when I first met Tanya and then when we first started dating. Like That's when I got to know Morgan and Mercedes more. Like There was a two-month period between them asking me if I wanted to direct it and then me sitting down to you know film with them. And then from that point on, which is really like March 2015, almost two years ago, yeah. it like I've got to know them more and more, like as from colleagues to you know friends at this point. So like both Tanya and I are friends with them, obviously on different levels. But it's cool that there's that friendship that's at the backdrop of our relationship on top of just Kitty. Heck yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you know, ne- next time we do an episode, I'm going to come do it in person, and then we can all hang out. I like it. We'll just have everybody over, like, meat and cheese platter, and it'll be awesome. Yeah. That's how we it's do it. Queen <laughs> <laughs> But, um, also, you sent me uh, a trailer. I think it's live now, right? So everybody can see it? Well, it's just live for you. It doesn't go anywhere else. It doesn't get shared. This will get dropped soon. But I'm using this opportunity to talk with you to kind of basically just uh, promote it. So glad I didn't share it. Um, <laughs> <Me too. laughs> um, it's called Box Art and tickles my nerdy bone when I watched it. And once again, extremely envious of you getting to travel around and meet people in industries that I've loved since before I could like read chapter books, which is video games and comics and he-man and all the cool stuff you get to do so what is box art well box art a gaming docu-series the official title uh was basically me trying to answer a question that i couldn't find an answer to for a while and that's who are the people responsible for the cover art of our favorite video games you know, these are the images that we first connect with when we see that box on the shelf, especially back in the day. And even now, gaming images that are online or on e-stores look like a box. It's a rectangle. And yet nobody ever really gets credit for those designs. And those designs really are the things we remember first when we think of Mario 3 or we think of Mega Man or whatever title Battle you want to put there. And so my good friends in Vegas, Doug and Nicole, who own a, a great retro game shop out there called Retro City Games, came into possession of a bunch of uh, artwork that was kind of in development. So it kind of told the tale of the tape about some Super Nintendo titles. And you saw early sketches and then all the way through kind of like completion and proofs. And we're like, well, who did these? Because there, there's no like artist signature on them. And that was like, well, who did any of these? So I thought, you know, this could be a really great documentary tracking down the illustrators that basically painted the the canvas of our of our gaming history and letting them talk for the first time and seeing who they are and how that influenced the covers that they drew. 
So over season one, which is slated to be about six episodes right now, we talked to people from, you know, uh, the Atari and Fairchild days all the way up through like nowadays and, and how artists are working today to do stuff for, you know, games that are only on Steam or PlayStation and how a piece of them kind of reflects in, in the art that gets that gets made and how uh, the infancy of the industry at the beginning really allowed for a lot more creative art choices uh, compared to we are now with a lot more of the corporate uh, marketing agencies saying, you know, let's just go with a logo and the logo will speak for everything. So we kind of talk about everything in the middle and, of course, some great anecdotes and some really great people that uh, are really the un- the unsung heroes that never get any of the credits. Everybody knows Miyamoto or, uh, you know, Koji Kondi uh, on the composer side, but who knows these illustrators? So whatever video game stuff you like, whatever console or era we've kind of got it covered and can't wait to share that with everybody because that was another great kickstarter that got funded a couple years ago and it's due out in december but we've been working hard on the trailer and that should drop sometime next week that's awesome yeah i remember you teasing this project when you came on um april of last year so yeah you're right it's been almost an exact year uh since we first had you on and you were actually teasing this project i think it was in the you know the the planning stages and, and the idea stages and now to see that you're able to bring it bring it to market is pretty awesome i mean i know for 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 my era of video games when i was a kid you know the graphics couldn't really sell a game um you know if you just ran graphics on the outside of the box it'd be hard to tell what it was about so like the art told the story that you were going to immerse yourself in it actually the art on the box would kickstart your brain into okay this is what i'm playing this is this is the world I'm in. This is, you know, it, games weren't as expressive as they are now. I mean, you load up The Last of Us remastered on the PS4, and you're like, it's absolutely prettier than real life. But, you know, when you were selling Castlevania, it wasn't prettier than real life. But that that art, though, was just amazing. I want that poster that's teased in the trailer when someone's like, would you want this poster? And they're like, nah, Dracula would haunt my dreams. <laughs> I would take that poster in a heartbeat. You should love- see, like, there's there's some clips near the end of that trailer uh, where Dan, who kind of has the last word, saying, you know, it, it would be a shame if these people didn't get the credit that they're due. We see the original poster for, or the original canvas, or the illustrator board, I guess, for Panic Restaurant, and I think it's Gunstar Heroes. Yep. And this guy has, like, an amazing private collection. I have seen the originals of so many of our favorite games that when you see the original it, you can't look at the box and feel envious of what that looks like anymore like you have to have the original it's it's a dangerous thing for a collector t- to be in that kind of space well, well yeah i mean i remember um the only the only audible gasp as i watched it by myself this morning the only audible gasp was the uh, the cover art for haunted house oh yeah um, that's one of the games where you're literally a pair of googly eyes on a screen but it's one of the games that has always stuck with me um, from one of my first gaming memories and a game I always think of when I think about what made me love video games. And to see the box art for it, I actually gasped out loud as I was like, oh, my God, I remember how much I love that game. Nice. And, you know, like the cover is absolutely gorgeous. And when you were a kid, it was kind of a scary cover. But you load up the game, and like I said, it's the old 
Atari walled room after walled room as you travel through. And for the most part, you're just a pair of googly eyes on screen. But that cover sells your your brain into saying, I'm in a haunted house. And it does a really good job of selling yeah. it. So, yeah, I mean, I remember for, for me, I mean, when I was younger, if I bought a game, it was because something jumped off a shelf visually on the front. You know, I mean, even with Nintendo, I know Atari almost killed itself, you know, with with its glut of games. But Nintendo and Sega, they they had a really big saturating market. Um, There was games all over the shelves and it would take that that one that stood out when you looked at it and you were like, that's my game. I get one new game a year or I rent one game a week with my allowance and it, it had to grab you. So, yeah, I'm totally down with the concept of the box art thing. I think that's awesome. And those artists do deserve all the credit that they can get. They really do. Tanya, what did you think of it? Because you've seen bits and pieces as it's coming together and Lucky. some of the other footage from the episodes. What, uh, what what did you think? What was your impression? Well, because I always had, you know, I always, I agree. Like, I, the box art's got to grab you. Mine was, you know, I, we had an in-television and then fast forward to, like, a Super Nintendo, nothing in between. And I remember, like, the first cover art that grabbed me was Super Ghouls and Ghosts. I thought it was kick-ass, because before that I was just playing, like, Dungeons and Dragons on television and things like that. But seeing the box art trailer and seeing that there was such a story behind the people that illustrate these things and seeing that that was the only way you had to push video games as we were growing up. And, like, I remember how the graphics weren't, you know, great or anything like that. It was really refreshing to see the people behind it, these kind of unsung heroes that they're selling the game. The games aren't selling themselves at this point. They're they're That's the hook. That's like the pop hook in the song that gets you. You want to pull it off the shelf and you can't wait to get home and play it. And that's how I kind of felt when I saw the box art trailer, that this, this that's what these people were doing. And no one really knew who they were. And you're kind of, you've delved into that. And it's really interesting to see that dynamic of how those people have influenced the industry and, and influenced the games and the marketing and, that such so like so on and so forth oh, that was really really cool and i love all the like the little personal anecdotes that are in there and talking to the fans and i just it's an, another great story that just was begging to be told just no one wanted to tell it or tell it the right way i think you've done a really good job of doing that again the bribe has paid off <laughs> <laughs> you know i mean these compliments get expensive rob <laughs> she's worth it <laughs> most definitely she's, a, she's like, always worth it i mean like for me like the first video game i remember spending my money on um where i actually saved up and spent my money on was um and i know everyone's gonna be like well yeah you were a kid and it was the ninja turtles but no oh, i yeah. was a kid and there were mario games and all the other games that everybody was playing at the time around me was available was that ultra artwork for um that first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle game, oh, yeah, not the definitely. one based off the arcade games, but like the oh, Ultra yeah. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle game, that is probably still one of the coolest images of the four turtles all at once that anybody's ever done. Yeah, it's it's super slick and polished and some nice airbrush and yeah, there's uh oh man, I'm gonna go on and talk about all these anecdotes. All I can say is you know check it out. It'll be on uh, our Facebook page, facebook.com/boxartdoc. Doc. 
the week after Easter, so you'll be able to get to check it out and uh, let your mind speculate about who else we got, because there's lots of people that didn't make the trailer, but, you know, we got six episodes to fill, and who knows, if it does well, then we can do more. We had 150 people or so that had done cover illustrations be willing participants. We only got to a small handful, of course, but uh, the road is set to do a lot more, uh, if it makes sense. That's freaking awesome, dude. Like I said, you're the fan of stuff that I want to be. Well, let, let me leave it with this then. You just wait. <laughs> because uh, it, it's been five years since we shot Nintendo Quest, Jay Bartlett and myself. Right. And on April 24th on Kickstarter, you will see what our next project is. Mark your calendar. Mark it down. Tuesday, April 24th on Kickstarter, you will see what our next project is. Um, we've had a lot of different ideas, you know, since we finished Nintendo Quest and saw the reception of that. And uh, this this is the one by far that, uh, like, beats the other ones out. You know, we, we always talk back and forth, you know, should we do something, shouldn't we? What are the pros and cons? What could it be? And we finally got the perfect idea that is worthy of being made into a film. And we're going to bring it to the masses and get some excitement going and see if we can get uh, our budget kickstarted and then deliver another awesome doc. Well, you know, I'll be behind it 100%. Love it. I mean, the, the show's it. open to you. I'll, I'll, I'll actually help with the campaign. I'll contribute to the campaign and I'll promote it. Um, you awesome. know me. We'll both be honest, of course. If if you want to have Jay and I chat, we'd we'd love to stop by. Most definitely. Cool. So for now, everybody's got to get their peepers on the Kitty documentary and uh, get ready for this upcoming box art project and get excited for what's going on in April. But you've got other stuff people can watch, like you said on Nintendo Quest and others. So uh, people go to it's Rob McCollum Films, right? Yeah, Rob McCallum Films, M-C-C-A-L-L-U-M, uh, films.com. There's a bunch of links on there. You can check out Nintendo Quest. You can check out Nintendo Quest Power Tour, which is our follow-up series, yeah. where we go back across the country uh, across eight episodes. Uh, I got Missing Mom on there, which is you know won, I think, eight or nine different awards at different festivals. That's streaming now on Amazon Prime. So if you've got a Prime membership, you can check it out for free. And uh, lots of stuff. There's the trailer for He-Man, and that comes out this year, too. So Woo-hoo. I'm sure come back and chat about He-Man, too, when that drops, and then box art at the end of the year. And who knows? Who knows where we'll be next time? <laughs> well, wherever your travels take you, you guys are welcome back on any time. The show's completely open to you guys, always. Thank cool. you. Thanks, man. But for now, it is Easter, and we both have families, so uh, I guess we can call it. <laughs> cool. Thanks, dude. Thank you. Thank you. You know how cool it is to get to meet you? Well, it's awesome to meet you. I've heard so many good things from Rob. Her, her again. Huh? I've heard great things. Oh, I've heard great things from Rob, so I was looking forward to it. Most definitely. Um, like, like like I said, I know you hear it all the time, but I've been a fan of your guys' music since the first time I heard the first opening riff of anything. That's awesome. Because no matter how many times I hear it, it never, it never gets... It never gets not cool. I think it's so. I think it's so cool. It's still that, still people are listening and still people dug what we were digging at the same time. I think it's kick ass, and we can relate to so many people. I feel like, especially with this age of social media, we've got, we can reach out and be friends with people that 
we couldn't be friends too with, you know, because they don't live next door. They're not in the same town. We're making connections all over the place. I think it's a pretty cool thing, especially 20 years later. Right? It's it, Yeah, like, I actually texted a, a couple of friends back home that, because I don't, I don't live where I grew up. I grew up in Massachusetts. I live in Atlanta now. And I was like, guys, I'm going to talk to someone from Kitty today. And they were like, you shut your mouth off. Because, you know, we all grew up together. And, uh, you know, I, I just want you to know, and it's not pandering, because if you look at my Twitter time feed, you'll realize that I think all SJWs can go die in a fire. Um, you guys made our radar, not because you were girls, but because you guys kicked ass. Honestly. That's awesome to hear. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. But y'all enjoy your family on Easter. I'm going to go start enjoying mine. And like I said, anytime you guys want to come back on to promote something or just to shoot the breeze, the show's open to you guys. Cool. All right, well, awesome, you, you man. Call, you call the boss. You call the boss and, and set it up. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Rob. All right. Cheers, brother. Thanks, Tanya. It was awesome to meet you. You're welcome. Nice to meet you as well. Yeah.